Hi, I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And we're going to challenge you to transform your financial future through the principles of the most profitable business in the world, banking. We believe everyone should be involved in two businesses, the business that you're in and the banking business. Everyday people can replicate what bankers have been doing for centuries to leverage capital and build wealth through private lending. Join us as we uncover the truths about money, expose lies and myths, and flip conventional financial advice on its head. Here we go. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We thought today Paul and I would conquer some of the frequently asked questions. So viewers writing in questions, probably what we'll do is just accumulate those over a a month or two or three, and then just do another one of these episodes in the future. So if you guys have any questions that you want to send in at any time, go ahead and email us at the email in the show notes below, and we'll be sure to cover it on the next episode. So we're just going to jump right in. We got a lot we want to get through. Uh, So we'll get through as many as we can, and then we'll save the, the rest for next time. So Paul, here's one that's very near and dear to our hearts is, so I have a bunch of cash value that I have access to now. Now, what do I do? Yeah. You know, you often get the, should I finance my next car purchase with my life insurance cash value? And my answer is you're the banker. You could do whatever the heck you want. Like, it's not, I have my opinions on what, or we have our, uh, the things that we do with our cash value, but Mm -hmm. there's not a wrong way really to, to decide how to, how to do this. Right. So Personally, and I know you do the same thing, is I like to put my life insurance cash value to work. How do I put it to work? Well, I participate in real estate syndications, both on the GP and the LP side. I do some private money lending, and there's different terms for that. Some people might call it peer-to-peer lending, but I'm generally lending to businesses, not individuals, right? So there's there's that. Recently, I had some clients in Hawaii. I should go visit them so I could write off a trip. There you go. Uh, recently, they were saying, I feel like we should be doing more. And I said, well, you're building capital. And you know, my example to them was like, we're all around the same age. We're all approaching army retirement. Wouldn't it be nice to, especially considering the price of real estate now, to go into a strong, you know, be in a strong cash liquid position as you approach retirement? Because you don't know where you're going to end up, where you're going to work, what anything is going to look like at that point, right? It's all kind of unknown. But I tell you, no one is ever upset like, oh, I have, you know, all this cash sitting around. Like nobody (laughs) ever says that really. Yeah. Because cash is still king. And we see that in the housing market today where around here in the Northern Virginia area, people are, cash buyers win. They win every time in any, any market. Right. So that that's my overall point. So it depends. But you're the banker. You decide what to do. But opportunities abound for the well capitalized. Absolutely. And when when Paul says you're the banker, you decide that doesn't mean that once you get one of these policies in place that you never you're you're never going to hear from us again. What Paul and I love to do is coach our clients. Like just setting the policy up is, you know, that's really just the first step is getting that policy going. And then the next step and where it starts to get really, really fun is when somebody accumulates a significant amount of cash value that maybe they've got their emergency reserves covered and then they've got a chunk above that that they can, you know, use for opportunities. And then that's when it gets really fun. And, and Paul and I both participate in the private lending side. And I love, I love, the, you said peer to peer. I just love private lending because it's private, private citizens, private entities interacting with each other. And that's, that's what I do with my wealth. I had this a back and forth with a, a, a CFP, a certified financial planner on LinkedIn, I believe yesterday and trying to explain to him, there's a different way to transact outside of the traditional financial markets. And 
when you do it peer to peer or private entity to another private entity, you too can make whatever decisions, whatever contract you want between each other and do that however you want. There's a whole other world out there where private lending is is so much more beneficial because you have so much more control over what you're doing. So that's uh, that's one of the, the, the most exciting parts of what we do is helping people, you know, not telling them what to do because that's not what we do. You are the bank, but exposing them to opportunities like, hey, here's here's three people that you could go talk to about a private lending opportunity. Have at it. Go do your own due diligence and let me know what you think and and make it happen. Yeah. And oftentimes these these types of opportunities come with some sort of collateral, right? Whereas, you know, what, what someone's offering this in the stock market, whether it's mutual funds or individual stocks or whatever, you know, whatever bro- your brokerage is offering, those aren't collateralized. No. You could lose it. The only guarantee is you could lose it all. Right. And I'm done playing that game. I've lost too much money playing the game of even private lending that's not backed up by anything except somebody's word. No, the private lending I do now is backed up by a corporate guarantee, not just a person guaranteeing it, but an entire corporation a business and all the business revenue and the assets that that business owns guaranteeing that I'm going to get my money back or yeah, tangible assets, vehicles, properties, whatever yeah, it may be. Yeah. Equipment. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. Paul, how long Nelson said I have to wait like seven years to quote capitalize my bank before I can really use it. So how does that work? Do I have to wait seven years before I can access this cash? I would say it depends. You know, Nelson, Nelson was just giving you some, some examples, right? Some real world examples in the book, right? Which was written in the year 2000. Those aren't, those are just examples, right? They're not a, this is how you have to do it, or you have to capitalize for seven years. It's really going to depend. You know, I've had clients that, um, and with the, and there's some varying opinions on this, but you know they they dump in a large lump sum plus an annual premium, so like a single lump sum, and then they they have an opportunity a few months later, and they and they leverage that money, and that's you know that's fine, right? What I wouldn't do is you know it, it, as long as it's 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 with intent and purpose, and in these cases, you know these clients were generating cash flows. You know, it's it's a good way to good way to do it, but it really depends. I have other clients that don't have a lump sum; they're paying monthly premium. They're starting where they're at. Right, which is super important, and their policy is properly designed for their income level and their current situation. And it's going to take them many, many years to build up, just like they would in a savings account. Right, it's going to take them many years to build up adequate capital. So we have our emergency fund, and then anything on top of that is maybe our, our opportunity fund or our, our whatever, whatever we want to call it. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it everyone's going to be different. I uh, unfortunately on on YouTube and 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 a lot of before they get to us, right? They're watching all these things. They've gone down these rabbit holes and they see these people paying $100,000 a year premium or 50,000 or whatever. Some, you know, large amount of money that they don't have. Yeah. And they're they're like, well, I can't do this because I can't pay $100,000 worth of premium every year. And that's just, that's just not true. Right. Like it's only for the rich. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I would agree. It absolutely depends. I think if you've got $100,000 sitting in a bank, in a checking account or savings account right now that you want to start using to go rehab your houses, you know, flip houses and that kind of stuff. You're absolutely going to be much better off, in my opinion, putting all of that into a policy and immediately accessing those cash value loans to go do your rehabs and all of that. And I've had clients who do that. They a ton of it right up front. And then they have that earmark that they're going to start using. That's the rehab fund. And it's just a bank, you know, it's their own credit line that they've created. 
So yeah, you end up with just a larger pool of capital over the long term. You know, you have more money in a policy earlier than someone who's just that doesn't have the lump sum, right? So it ends up everything ends up being larger. Yeah, you know, the dividend's going to be larger. You know, if paid, and you know, cash value access is going to be greater. Whatever death benefit, obviously, that lump sum's going to buy a certain amount of death benefit, right? That sits on top of the base policy. So, yeah, yeah, there, there, there's advantages for sure. And if your goal, it, it really comes down to your goals. What's your goal for this? I have some people who say, well, I, I want when my son is 22, I want him to have a hundred thousand dollars of cash value to be able to pay back college loans like that. Or when he's 18, I want, or 16, I want him to have $12,000 to buy a car. And then we just reverse engineer it. And yeah, you start with a goal and then we figure out what you got to contribute, what you got to pay in premium to get to that goal. So that's uh, right. Yeah. It's all very tailor-made to the individual uh, and their situation. Cool. Well, uh, kind of along those lines, Paul, how much do I have to pay in premium? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I use I use this a lot with people when I'm talking to them in the early stages. And I say that's not the right question. What that right question says to me is you haven't read Nelson's book. Right. So first thing I'm going to say is yeah, go back and read that book and then come back. Yeah. You know, a high level people that have a high level understanding. And let's face it, this was me a few years ago, right? When I thought I was paying and I was, I was paying a healthy premium, right? Relative to my relative to my income, but I didn't realize really what I had until, you know, a few months later. And I was like, I should have made these bigger. Mm -hmm. And I ended up opening up another policy. Luckily I sold that to myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's not how much, how much should I pay? I mean, that's, that's going to be up to you. But when you really understand IBC and how dividend paying whole life insurance works, you're going to be asking us when you really understand the essence of this, how much can I pay? Yeah. Right. Because your human life value is only so much, right. Depending on your age or income, you know, all that. Right. So you can't just insure yourself for $20 million willy nilly unless your human life value is worth that much. Right. Yeah. So. Yep. Exactly. So, and, and again, it goes back to your goal. Well, what's your goal? Is it to buy a bicycle at the end of the year or is it to be able to pay off college loans in, in 10 years? Right. Because that's going to be two completely different premium amounts. There okay. are some expensive bicycles out there, though. Oh, you're telling me, man. Even a kid's bike. I'm, you know, my 10 year old wants a new bike and I wish his birthday was in the summertime because then, you know, I could kill two birds with one stone, but it's not. Yeah, it's like three, four hundred bucks for a decent bike. Yeah. Well, OK, enough of that rant. OK, Paul, should I do this or should I do a Roth IRA? Which one should okay. I do? This question came up yesterday too. same same person. And he's of the mindset like I don't want to do any qualified plan. So he's, you know, he's my hero now. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously we agree on that. Yeah. So this is not a, this or that strategy. Uh, you don't have to, you don't have to sacrifice. I have clients that still contribute once a year to their Roth IRAs, right. Or their traditional IRAs, whatever. And they also have dividend paying whole life insurance contracts, several of them. Right. So preferably I like to capture, especially if they're doing annual contributions, I like those contributions to the Roth or, or whatever IRA it is. I like that to be premium first, if possible, mm-hmm. right? So then they, they put that money into policy and they take policy loan out and fund that that IRA for the year, right? Now I have money working over here and I have money working over here, right? That I don't have any control over really. But, um, and then for the next year's contribution, they just, they repay that loan with next year's contribution, rinse and repeat, right? So that's a, that's a great strategy just to capture more dollars into your system. Um, and create two assets with the exact same with dollar. The same, with the same money, 
Right. Yeah. For example, this tax payment that I got to make here coming up to the IRS. Before the money hits the IRS, I'm putting in a policy first, policy loan, pay the tax bill, rinse and repeat. Yep. Um, and I'll be better off in the long run, obviously, because I got a death benefit now. I've got this ever-growing asset, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but no, this is an and asset, folks. You can do, you can have both this product and all the other things that you want to do with your cash. That's the whole point of this. It's not a, you don't have to compromise in order to do this. Yeah. You don't have to stop doing anything else to do this. You can implement this into your life. But what I think you're going to see is that once you do implement this or start understanding it, you'll probably want to stop doing some other things. And uh, yours truly. Yeah. Your, yeah. Both of us. Absolutely. All right, Paul, what is the proper policy design for me and my family? Yeah. Well, I think we already hit on it, right? You talked about it uh, on the on the last couple is it really depends. Mm-hmm. You, what is your goal? You know, I had one client that had a certain uh, cash value requirement at a certain point in the future. He was going to go get his you know master's degree at Stanford. And so we designed a policy that he would have enough cash value to do what he needed to do and still pay his premiums and manage policy loans if he had to, uh, all that stuff. So again, custom design, custom tailored to your needs and your goals uh, and there's a million ways to Sunday that we can design these things, right? But generally speaking, no two policies are going to be exactly the same, right? We're all different ages. We're all different health ratings. We all have different cash flows, income levels. All those things go into considering what your policy Right. So a lot, a lot of people might come and say, well, I've got, I want to get a policies on everybody in the family. Eventually, which order should I do this in? And again, there's not a one size fits all to this. I think that's really what we're getting at with this is this is this is tailored to your your situation and your situation is unlike anybody else's situation. There's probably a lot of similarities between all of our clients or most of our clients that come in kind of in the same situation in life, married, got kids, have maybe have some debt. Um, But every policy uh, designed for a family is going to be different than the next family. Paul, how many policies can I own? Well, we own eight. You can own as many as you want, really. So, for example, I'll give you, you know, a personal example. You know, we all know that Nelson Nash had, I, I can't, I can never remember the number. It's like 42 or 45 at the, at, at the peak. Right. On himself, on his wife, on his kids and his grandkids and uh, great grandkids, maybe. Um, so, f- for us, Tammy has a convertible term policy, right? Convertible term, folks, is something that we put in place when we don't adequate cash flows to have the same death benefit for a whole life policy, right? Because obviously the term policy is going to be cheaper relative to the whole life for the same amount of death benefit. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, but what what makes it, what's the convertible piece to that? Yeah, I was getting to that. Okay, get to it. (laughs) So convertible means I can convert, you know, it's basically the same underwriting, right? I can convert that term or portion of the term policy, the death benefit into a permanent whole life insurance policy without having to show additional, you know, go through additional medical underwriting, right? So I've already qualified for it medically. I'm locked in for this term period of time. In this case, it's 10 years on her. So, you know, we have nine more years to convert this certain amount of death benefit into permanent policy. So with the tax, you know, the tax payment thing, we're going to convert some of that term policy into another whole life policy for her and and and, and do that. And I've already done one term, term conversion on her before. I did it last year. And it's super simple. A couple of pieces of paper, a couple of signatures. And it's a very simple process and mm-hmm. no additional medical underwriting, which is huge, right? So I have a couple of clients that have 20-year terms that are waiting for future cash flows to kind of stabilize so that they convert all of it to whole life. 
uh, so that they can do IBC. But ter- you know, term obviously, Dave has no cash value, right? It's just you know, you're you're paying premium for a certain death benefit for coverage, and it has value, of, of course. But there's no cash value that can be leveraged, right? It's just like rental insurance. There's you don't own, right? You know, there's no cash. Yeah. So. But that's a brilliant strategy for people who don't have, like you said, the cash flows right now to create a whole life policy that's going to be meaningful. So, but you're not getting any healthier with time usually, and you're certainly not getting any younger. So why not lock in your health rating today that's guaranteed no matter what happens, cancer, disability, anything, and then convert that at a later time with the same health rating as today. Okay. So we kind of got off topic, maybe covered uh, something we didn't intend to, but that's a a really good thing to talk about. So the bottom line, you can own as many policies as the insurance company will underwrite you for. So you're really only limited by the, the, your human life value. So if you're 30 years old, you make a hundred thousand dollars, your human life value is, was it $3 million? Sure. You know, 30 times your annual income, yeah. you know, for guys our age is 20 to 25 times our annual income. That's the cap. And once you have, you know, maybe it's two policies, maybe it's 15 policies. But once you hit that human life value of you're under, you have $3 million of life insurance now in that example, then you cannot get another policy until your income increases and you build more room and more human life value. Your life becomes more valuable because you're you're producing more. Okay. That's right. Like I, I ended up maxing myself out a couple of years ago and I opened up that, that, that one policy, uh, which is good, right? I want to be fully insured folks, right? Yeah. I want to, I, cause we're replacing my future income. If my income is X, I want to replace all of it for the next 25 years. Like Dave just said. So again, most people are underinsured Dave, right? Oh, At incredibly. That they, oh, incredibly. Oh, I have 250. Well, man, you look at the price of things today. Sure, 1980. That was that was good, but yeah. Now that's I'm sorry. That's just this is not a lot. Yeah. So something to think about. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's skip the next one. Come back to it if we have time because we kind of covered it uh, already. Yeah. So how about this one? When should I? When's the right time to start another policy? Say I've already got a couple policies in place. Everything's going great. Uh, I'm able to fund the premium and all that. When should I start another policy? Sure. So. If I'm fully paying my premiums, if I have no policy loans outstanding that I'm repaying and I find myself having you know met all those obligations and my other obligations and I have money just kind of stacking up in my checking or savings account, it might be time to consider opening up another policy, right? Maybe you need to open up that policy on, on, on the children, right? Where you split that extra cash flow between the two kids uh, or three kids, you know, whatever it is. So there's a lot of noise out there about laddering policies and using yeah. policy loans and then funding another policy and doing things with HELOCs and stuff. That's all part of the noise, I think. I just don't think that's a good idea, right? Not for the um, not for the policy owner, maybe for the agent. It's great for the agent. Great for the right? agent. Right, because right? we get paid every time you open up a new policy, right? Right. So, yeah, right. like, obviously, we're not telling our clients that stuff. Um, you know, opening up a new policy should not be an arbitrary kind of decision, right? It should be calculated and, you know, I'm going to want to see a dedicated cash flow because I want you to continue to pay premium on that new policy for forever, right? Yeah. Until you pass or I pass or, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. That's the idea. But if we don't do that properly, people are just going to get it into trouble. Like this premium finance stuff that, that, that I read, that we've read about where that's universal life, I think, but it's just... Yeah, that's that's a completely different segment of the population that that might be able to get away with that. Uh, But it's there's there's risk involved. 
No, no question. And, yeah. and folks, the whole purpose of insurance, right? Any insurance is to transfer risk to the like to the insurance company, right? Right. Not to retain risk, right? We're transferring risk. We have enough. We have enough risk in our lives already. Uh, why retain unnecessary risks? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I had this conversation with somebody yesterday, a, a client who's already got two pretty big policies and he already is realizing he's like, I think he's paying like $36,000 a year in premium. He's like, I just know that 36,000 a year is not enough. I should be paying more. So when is the right time to open another policy? And kind of like what you said, the way I look at it is, can you fully fund the premiums every year? Can you you don't have to have, in my opinion, you don't have to have all the, the outstanding loan balance repaid, but are you able to make monthly payments towards repaying that outstanding loan and still have additional cash? Sure. And then, and then at that point, I think it might be better. It's, and again, this depends on your situation, but there, it could be better to, instead of throwing the extra cash flow against your outstanding loan, Start use a policy. portion of that to fund the premium in a new policy and start building a new asset with that cash. Um, the way I look at it, when I do my private lending, I know I'm getting my money back because I have multiple layers of protection and collateral on right. that money. When I, when I take those cash value loans, put it somewhere, I know that's coming back. So I'm not necessarily concerned about paying that loan back because I know it's coming back to me. And in fact, I can retrieve it you know, within uh, a decent amount of time if I need it back. But I do want to cover the interest on that payment every year uh, at a minimum. And then if I got extra cash flow, I'm going to start a new policy, which is what I did last December. So, um, yeah, I, again, you know, the answer to most of our questions is going to be is going to start with it depends. Let's yep. talk about your specific situation. So, all right, um, let's do this uh, last question here. And then we'll uh, we'll have to cover the rest in a future episode. Are policy loans taxable? Yeah, this one I'm going to give a shout out to Tammy's best friend Lynn up there in Connecticut, who is aware of the tax code. Her husband's a CPA, and uh, and she worked in the tax business for a long time. That's actually how they met. Anyway, so she was texting me the other day. She's listening to the podcast. She just happened to stumble upon the podcast, right? Mm. And. I was like, Tammy, you didn't tell her about it? Anyway, so, <laughs> so the answer is, generally speaking, no, policy loans aren't taxable. However, there is a situation where if you, I'm going to say, if you muck things up, where you get like max policy loans out, then you, you know, the policy eats itself and collapses and has to be canceled, that could be a taxable event. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, no, it's a loan, right? Loans are not taxable. When you go to the bank and you get a car loan, are you taxed on that money that you're loaning? No, you're not. And this is, yeah, this works no differently. Outside of that situation I just named, which is, again, you have to try to do that. And my clients certainly aren't going to do that. The education process we go through is, is very specific. Like we don't steal the peas. Um, we, we value our capital, right? We value the bank's capital. We third-party lender. We need to value our own, right? So, so generally speaking, no. Um, you can open source Google about policy loans from life insurance companies and get some decent. There's some decent articles on there about what I just explained. But if you want a little more depth, but no, it's uh, not a taxable event. Cool, great, and that's how we can say you can you have access to your cash value tax free. Technically, your cash value grows tax deferred. 
But if you use it properly in the way that it's designed to be used under the infinite banking concept, you will not pay tax when you access that cash value, which is huge by the time you get to retirement. And, you know, especially RMDs require minimum distributions, all of that. You want to limit your tax liability. Who knows what the tax brackets are going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now when you got to start doing that. So plan ahead, plan now. All right. Great. That was a a good. Thank you for those questions. Those are phenomenal. And again, if you want to send any more in, use that email link uh, in the show notes and we will be sure to cover your questions on a future episode. Paul, got any parting shots? Nope. Just pick up Becoming Your Own Banker by R. Nelson Nash, written in 2000, so you can know what we're talking about. Absolutely. That's always your parting shot. Love it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to have a conversation with us to see how you can become your own banker, or if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to tackle on a future episode, please send us an email to David and Paul at the And subscribe and leave us a review if you're on Apple. Follow and leave us a five-star review if you're on Spotify. And please share this with your friends. We'll see you next week.